Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we answer your Bible questions. Temptation is not sin. It's when we yield ourselves to that thing. That's when it becomes sin. I believe what this is, and I'm going to trust you. So what prophecies were they studying that helped them know when the Messiah would come? That's a good question. And I think we've got a pretty good answer for you here. Hey there, and welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we get to answer your Bible questions. These are questions that have been submitted by viewers of It Is Written programs. They've said, can you answer my question? Our answer is always, we'll do our very best. If we don't know the answer, we'll either find it or we'll let you know. We just don't know the answer. I'm John Bradshaw. With me is Pastor Wes Peppers. Wes, great to have you here. Always great to be here, Pastor John. A good day to answer some Bible questions. Every day is a good day for that. I think we've got some challenging questions, some interesting questions. We do. Why don't you start us off by reading question number one. All right. Our first question comes from Deborah, and she says, What is the Bible position on sexual orientation? Is it genetic or a learned characteristic? Okay, that's a terrific question, a very timely question, because society is grappling with this, wrestling with this more now maybe than ever before. I think the answer is, well, I'll give you two answers. Answer number one is it doesn't even matter. And answer number two is maybe. So here's the thing. What your sexual orientation is, is one thing, but how you live within that is another, right? You might be predisposed to be angry doesn't mean you should be angry. You might be predisposed to kleptomania doesn't mean you should steal. You might come out of the womb like this or like that. No matter how you are born, no matter what you figure you were born with or like or how, you still must be moral. And there's a biblical moral code to live with. Now, where someone is going to say, ah, but... I was born with this particular leaning, and you're telling me that I can't exercise that particular leaning. Let's put that to the side. Are there other sins that someone might be born with that that God would say, no, even though you inherited this or you, you were born like whatever you are born like, I don't want you to do. So, so what I'm saying is we shouldn't make one sin in a special category. Worse than the others. Yeah, yeah. And notice I'm using the word sin. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to pick up on that. I mean anything outside the will of God. Yeah. And let's consider another, uh, another sexual behavior or practice. What about that guy who can't keep himself to himself, or the woman who can't keep herself to herself and has multiple partners mm-hmm. within a marriage relationship or outside a marriage relationship? That's right. You, you see, if one, were to con- if one were to consider the practice of homosexual behavior uh, outside the will of God, You've got to understand there's all kinds of sexual behavior outside the will of God. That's right. And that is verboten. You don't do it. But what about me over here? I'm, I'm perhaps homosexual. I have a, a, a terrible struggle. The heterosexual has a terrible struggle as well. So your struggle as someone who's gay is, is no more special than someone's struggle who is, is straight. The question is, does God have the power right. to help somebody or to enable somebody to live a faithful life, irrespective of their leanings or preferences or their genetic predisposition. Does God have the power, I'm asking you? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I heard it once said, it doesn't matter how you're born, you can be born again. That's right. And the grace of God has power over any sin. It doesn't matter what that sin is. Now, it doesn't mean that the temptations are going to be easy. Right. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. There's a struggling against sin that always has to take place. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things that are natural for me, which are sin, I do do. But in the end of that struggle, he makes an important point, and he says, how do, how do I get the victory over this? What's the solution? He says, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who gives me the victory. That's right. And God can give us a victory. Sometimes God gives us a victory over sin, and it's immediate, and we never struggle with that thing again. Other issues that we may struggle with, he may have to give us the victory moment by moment. Right. And it doesn't matter what it is. Sometimes we like to... I would say culture likes to kind of protect the sin of homosexuality, but in reality, it's the same as any other sin. And God wants to give us the victory. He can give us the victory. There has to be some wrestling, but through prayer and through uh, study of God's Word and through surrendering and yielding to Him, the victory can be had. So the question from Deborah was, is it genetical learned? And Deborah, the answer is, it just depends. You're asking us to put every person with homosexual leanings or tendencies or preferences or whatever you want to call it in one box, and you can't. There are some people, it's clearly learned. It's a choice. I was heterosexual till I was 20, 30, 40, 50, and, you know, one day I thought, hey, let's give this a try. That happens. Let's not pretend it doesn't. However, there are some people you'd have to be denying their experience. They say, I've never had an attraction to members of the opposite sex. As long back as I can remember, I have had attractions to people of the same sex. I don't think we need to pretend that's a myth. Uh, is every homosexual lying? I don't think so. I think that's the genuine experience of many people. You don't want to put everybody into one category because that's dishonest and inaccurate and unfair. But you also, I don't think it's wise... Wes, I'll stick my neck out of it. I don't think it's wise for Christians to say, oh, you, you don't have to be that way. That's right. That, I think that's ignorant. It's and unsympathetic. It, it's unsympathetic. It's unpassionate. Yep. And it denies the reality that people that's are experiencing. Right. That's right. Parents of homosexual kids will tell you, we did everything a certain way. We provided everything as, as our parents did for us and their parents did for them. And yet my child is homosexual. We didn't teach it to them. It came naturally. Do we have to deny that? No. We don't we, have to deny that. We can't deny that. And you people, are, that. people are struggling with different things. There's different things going on in the mind and the heart and the body, and there's all kinds of influences from culture, and yeah. people are struggling, and we need to be real about that and not just shut that down, but at the same time recognize that the grace and the power of God are stronger yeah. than any influence in our life and can give us victory and can lead us more and more uh, and closer and closer to his ideal. Yeah, and we, we know that's true because both of both you and I know people that's right. who've lived in all kinds of sexual situations and they've come out of those and they're following a very straight biblical path. That's right. I'm going to add to this. I think it's time for Christians everywhere to figure out how to relate to homosexuals. Mm-hmm. I agree. Not with banners that say you all are going to hell. That was never fair It was never appropriate. Uh, There are people who genuinely believe this is who they are. There are people who are genuinely struggling. I've spoken to people who've wept rivers of tears talking about their struggle. Um, 
you'd be sympathetic to someone who was angry or prideful, <clears throat> excuse me, or had a gambling addiction or anything else. We have to relate to everybody with love and respect. Now, someone's going to say, well, John, you called it sin. That doesn't sound very loving. Well, sorry. Um, I, 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 I intend to be loving, but I believe that's the Bible position, that that, that action indulging that is, is outside the will of God. I think, I don't think, the Bible teaches us the way to love everybody, everybody, and figure out a way to do that while still being faithful to God and the Word of God. That's right. So, And, and the perfect example of that is the life of Jesus. Uh, he did that with everybody he encountered. And if we follow that example, unfortunately, the church hasn't always followed that perfect example. That's right. The church has often been harsh. And, and so there's a right balance to have. Yes, the... We want to address sin. We want to help people get the victory over it because that's the most loving thing we can do. That's right. But at the same time, we have to be sympathetic and kind and and understanding of their situation, not agreeing with it. There's a difference in understanding of being compassionate and agreeing with something. We may not agree with that sin or that issue, but we can come down and take them by the hand and lead them out, lead them to Jesus, and help them see that there's a better way. Yeah, and love people always in all things. That's right. All right. Well, that was a little longer, but that's a complex question. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it and, is. And, 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 and I want to be balanced about that. And that's right. As balanced as, I, as, I, as I'm capable of being. Sure. Robert asks this question, Wes, I'll ask it of you. Many people complain about the hardships they face in life, also seem to be disregarding guidelines God gives us. They say we're no longer bound by the law. So evidently the question is, some people are disregarding God's word and then complaining about the hardships. Maybe they set themselves up for, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Did God change his mind about these things? I think he doesn't change. What sayest the scripture? Sure. You know, um, the Bible does give us many health laws and different types of things to follow principles and guidelines that are for our own good. And they strengthen us. They benefit us. And when we ignore them or disregard them, many of the hardships we see in the world aren't always necessarily caused by the devil, but just simply our disregard for the truth of God. So there is some truth to that. Yeah, there are laws that are set in motion. The law of gravity right. is what it is. If you step off that cliff, the law of gravity is going to end up doing you in. Yes. Or don't blame the law. That's you right. knew the law, you stepped off the edge. There are consequences. That's right. Yeah. So there are some laws in Scripture, like the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws of the Old Testament that are no longer applicable. Mm-hmm. But the health laws, you know, in, in the Old Testament, it says, wash your hands, bury your waist, these types of things. We don't disregard those. Those are still applicable to us today. So there are many laws that we have in the world today that are based upon the Old Testament biblical laws, and those things are helpful and good. Now, should we beat people up when we've obviously seen that they aren't following those things? No. The same application of grace and compassion and helping people learn that there is a better way, I think that's very important. When it comes to the principles of health in the Bible— and there are numerous principles of health. There's a difference between clean and unclean animals. That's always been the case. I was meeting with some friends recently, old high school friends. And a good buddy, he's, uh, he's put on a little weight over the years. And he says, oh, there's this restaurant I go to. And he talked about this food that he would eat there. I mean, you'd never eat it in a thousand lifetimes. I don't know what he's doing eating it, but he enjoys it. Yeah, yeah. And then he says, ah, oh, yeah. But after that, my gout flares up. I don't oh have gout until I eat this stuff. Yeah, I yeah. eat this and I got gout. Well, for him, it's okay. He, he figures he's just going to go through life having this, this, this fight with gout and that it's worth it because he gets to eat his garbage. 
the better thing would be to say, I do not need to be sowing and therefore reaping that's right. Those unfortunate health yeah. situations. Yeah, good common sense. You follow the word of God. Follow the principles found in Scripture. They're there for your benefit. Okay, let's be quick and see if we can be be quick. Uh, Ryan asks, "Why did God choose death as the punishment for sin?" It seems a little harsh. Why not? <laughs> why not a spanking or thirty days of hard labor well, or something less drastic? That's humorous and uh, you know a good question. But the reality is, is that the Bible tells us in the book of James that sin, when it's fully uh, matured, it brings forth death. That's so right. I don't know that God chose death as the punishment, but the punishment for, or not the punishment, but the consequence of sin is death. I'd have said it exactly the same it's way. It's like a cancer. It's it's the, well, what is sin? What is sin? Sin is separating oneself from the will of God. That's right. The, the Bible says, he that hath the son hath life. Mm-hmm. But when you sin, you're choosing not Jesus, but you're choosing sin. That's right. The consequence of that is death. Life is only found in Jesus. There's only one place. When you're connected with Jesus, when you're united with Jesus, you have found life. And when you step outside of that, no more life. Isaiah 55 verse 2 tells us that sin brings separation from God. So it's not that God said, hmm, sinners, what shall we do? Ah, let's kill them. God with, I don't know, Tears in his eyes, as it were, with a very, very heavy heart, knew that when you step away from God, that's sin, and that invites and brings death. The good news is the gift of God is eternal life. Death is the consequence for sin, but you don't have to suffer that consequence. You instead can enjoy life in Jesus. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. We will be back with more in just a moment. Planning for your financial future is a vital aspect of Christian stewardship. For this reason, It Is Written is pleased to offer free planned giving and estate services. For information on how we can help you, please call 800-992-2219. Call today or visit our website, hislegacy.com. Call 800-992-2219. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about studying the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious as well. Well, here's what you do if you want to dig deeper into God's Word. Go to itiswritten.study for the It Is Written Bible Study Guides Online, 25 in-depth Bible studies that will take you through the major teachings of the Bible. You'll be blessed, and it's something you'll want to tell others about as well. itiswritten.study. Go further. itiswritten.study. Welcome back to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written with Wes Peppers. I'm John Bradshaw. By the way, we are willing to answer your question. If you have a Bible question you'd like us to tackle, uh, send it to us by email to uh, lineuponline at iiw.org. Lineuponline at iiw.org, and we'll take a run at your question. Here's one, Wes, from Cheryl. In John 3.13, Jesus tells Nicodemus that no one is in heaven. But we know Moses and two others were in heaven when Jesus said this to Nicodemus. So what does he mean? Sure. You know, in the context of this whole chapter, Jesus is unfolding to Nicodemus that he is the Son of God, that he is divine. He's not just a man. He's the Son of God and the Son of Man. And so, uh, you know, the, Nicodemus just wasn't quite getting it. Mm-hmm. And so when he says that no one has ascended, he doesn't just mean physically, but he means 
No one has ascended or ascended from heaven who belong there. And of course, at that time, yes, Moses was in heaven, but Moses was not divine. Jesus was divine. And he's trying to get that point across to Nicodemus, and he has to do it several different ways because Nicodemus just isn't getting it. And of course, we know uh, when Jesus died and resurrected, Nicodemus became a very faithful follower of Jesus and the early church, and so eventually he does get it. But human nature is often um, dull, and we get kind of stuck on sometimes things that uh, are not really the main point, and that's kind of what was happening here. So, And Jesus really is appealing to his own divinity. Mm-hmm. That's right. This is the chapter in which Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Right around this time, Jesus refers to that kind of interesting story in the Old Testament where the Israelites got bitten by venomous serpents. Moses put a brass serpent on a pole. He said, Look and live, and they looked and they lived. And that serpent, of course, represented Jesus, the sin bearer, looked to Jesus. So John 3 is Jesus impressing upon Nicodemus that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Okay, another question for you. Let me roll this one away. Maurizio says, Some people try to defend their beliefs by referring to the apocryphal books of the Bible. So who decided what method was used to include books in the current Bible? And why do we not accept books included in the Apocrypha? Now, some people go, oh, we know the Apocrypha. Others will say, what in the world is that? The Apocrypha is a small collection of books, including Wisdom, uh, Tobit, First and Second Maccabees, Maccabees, the book of Judith. And there's a Daniel chapter, uh, a Daniel chapter 13. Right. Oh, just for fun, you want to Google that. Read the story of Bell and the Dragon and ask yourself, what were they smoking when they wrote that chapter? Whoever it was, it certainly wasn't Daniel. It absolutely has no place in the Bible. And it's indicative of some of the creative writing uh, that found its way into these uh, apocryphal books. Now, some of them are good for history. Some interesting Mm -hmm. historical stuff there. The story of the Apocrypha. Let's go. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things in the Apocrypha that don't line up consistently with other parts of the Bible. And, uh, you know, like, for instance, Daniel chapter 13, you know, it doesn't follow the pattern of what Daniel was writing in the first 12 chapters or the only 12 chapters of Daniel. So there's a number of things there. And theologians and and councils and uh, uh, various ones throughout history have recognized that, and they said these do not match the unity of the rest of Scripture, and we're going to reject those. And so, you know, again, there's some interesting history there, but also some theological points that are inconsistent with the rest of the Bible, and therefore that's why they have to be eliminated. When you look at all of the Bible, it's written over the course of 1,500 years by more than 60 authors uh, of different backgrounds, farmers, doctors, fishermen, and so forth. But one thing that's maintained throughout those books is the consistency of thought. It's obvious that there was one writer, the Holy Spirit, that's inspiring these Bible writers, and they are consistent all the way throughout. And the books of the Apocrypha don't line up with that consistency, and so therefore they were uh, rejected. The books that were included in Scripture are those that were deemed to be authentic, written by people who were there or spoke to the people who were there. That's right. Uh, They were historically accurate. And there was a consistency among them as the church many, many hundreds of years ago were wrestling with this idea, 
What books do we rely on as authoritative and what do we leave out? Because, of course, there were many writings that were swirling around. Many of them were obviously fraudulent. Um, some of those were, were, were dabbled with for some time. And then over time, the church came to its senses. You know, we want, to, we want to reject some of those. Um, it's okay, I think, to admit that theologians wrestled with some of the books of Scripture. Sure, Martin sure. Luther had a hard time with a couple of books of the Bible. Um, now, one of the reasons that there are some people who are enthusiastic about keeping the Apocrypha is that in one of the Apocryphal books, you can find something that supports the idea of purgatory. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a, a, a uniquely Roman Catholic doctrine. And, uh, of course, Roman Catholics are motivated to keep the Apocrypha because in there you can find um, support for one of the most or one of the many dubious theological beliefs. There's no purgatory. It's, it's just a, f- a fantasy. But what a great thing for a church to be able to say, well, here's a writing or writings that we believe buttress our claims that purgatory is an actual thing. So it's pretty clear to me that the reasons for including the apocryphal books are dubious and spurious and self-serving, not theologically sound. Pastor John, let me just add a word of caution to those watching that a lot of times there's people who are all about the apocrypha or some other eccentric writings, but they kind of ignore the Bible. They're not as excited about the the actual books that we do have confirmed versus those that we don't have confirmed. And so sometimes people are just always on this edge of periphery periphery of excitement and, a, and eccentric ideas, and we have to be careful about that. Read the Bible, uh, and, and, it, and it contains the words of life, and don't put as much emphasis on these other things as much as we do the Word of God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, regarding purgatory, if you have to go to the Apocrypha, to find support for, purg- support for purgatory, yeah. you've got all kinds of theological problems. That's right. You can't find it in the 66 books of the Bible that start with Genesis and end with Revelation. Yep. God has given us enough in the That's books right. that he's given us. This is kind of a repeat of a question we had before, so we'll acknowledge it because it came to us uh, from Juanita. She asks, are Christians supposed to keep the 613 laws? Are they listed in our Holy Bible? I think she's referencing to what some refer to as the, not the Ten Commandments, but the other commandments found in the Old Testament. Are we to keep them? Well, it depends on what they are, doesn't it? Yeah, it depends on what they are. Many of them are ceremonial, were fulfilled through the life and death of Christ, and so they're unnecessary, the sacrificial laws and so forth. Uh, There are many of the health laws that we mentioned still have benefit today, Mm -hmm. and clean and unclean, being sanitary, washing hands and so forth. And I think with some of these things, we have to use common sense. Are they still relevant for our culture today? Some of the laws talk about beard trimming and other mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Obviously, those are not impactful or relevant for us today. So you've got to use common sense. And sometimes people can tend to be fanatical about these things or, or even have the idea that our salvation depends upon them. I think we have to remember that we're saved by grace. The Ten Commandments are applicable to us today. But some of these things can still be helpful. So... You know, some are fulfilled and are no longer needed. Some are still relevant and applicable. Just use your sense and look at what the rest of the Bible says. Amen. Kay says, I'm watching from Canada. Pastor John, how old is the earth according to the Bible? Kay, that's a great question. I've got a great answer. At least I think it's a great answer. The Bible doesn't come out and say, this is how old the earth is, nor does it say, like... Paul would have really helped us mm-hmm. if he had written about the, the creation, uh, 
the, the invisible things of God are clearly seen in the creation, which happened 4,000 years ago. Wouldn't that have been great? That would have been great. <laughs> I was having a conversation with some friends yesterday, scientists, and we were talking about, we were talking about um, how, how helpful it would have been, or they were mentioning, if some Bible writers had said certain things and not said certain others. There are reasons God allowed some, some things into the Bible because he wants us to dig and grow and learn, wants us to study, and uh, wants us to have faith. About the best that I can tell, and I confess I'm sharing the scholarship of others on this as well, but if you go through the Bible, you do the mathematics, it appears that the Bible, uh, the earth was created about 6,000 years ago. Uh, I had somebody say less than 10,000 years. Well, 6,000 is less than 10,000 years. So, if I'm wrong about that by a day, a month, a week, or a year, you're going to be gracious towards me. If you think it's not 6,000 years, John, you're stuck in the past, then I'm stuck in the past with some pretty solid people. I'm okay with that. If you say less than 10,000, I'm not going to jump all over you, but I do wonder why you've got away from 6,000 when the Bible seems to indicate right around 6,000 years. That's if you look at Usher's chronology and so on. The clear thing is, in the beginning, God created something for you. The United States is eroding Mm -hmm. at a certain rate, a certain constant rate. It's between about a foot and three feet a year. Mm -hmm. Depends on where, but the coasts are eroding. If the planet was 400 million years old, there wouldn't be Mm -hmm. a United States. It would have eroded away. Our mountains wouldn't be mountains. Well, Given the current rate of erosion, they would have been 50 times higher than they are now. That's a descriptive thing. That's literal, but way higher than they are now. There's no reason to believe in an old earth, not from a scientific point of view, and certainly not from a scriptural point of view. The Bible makes clear it's a young earth. Uh, Again, I don't want this to be a hill anybody dies on. I'm thinking 6,000 years of age. That's the best I can figure out. Is it a little longer? Well, I'll leave that to you. But as far as we can tell, 6,000. What we know is that there's more and more evidence suggesting the young earth theory. And, uh, you know, I was an atheist at one point in my life. I have a degree in science from a state university. And I learned all these theories about millions and millions and billions of years old and so forth. And they're finding uh, that those things don't have the evidence to support them. Their theories, their ideas that somebody proposed – uh, but as you said, the rate of decay uh, it could be different. Some of the dating methods they've been using, they've found uh, that they, they're not as reliable as they yeah. once thought. And so we can trust the Bible. The Bible is clear. But also the evidence is starting to stack up more and more as time passes in favor of what the Bible said thousands of years ago. And it's pretty fascinating to see that progress through time. Yeah, you don't have to think that every scientist marches in lockstep. That's right. They, they, right. they, they just don't. Uh, and here's what I find interesting. You'll see a headline that says the earth is you know, three billion years older than we thought. That's a big mistake. Three billion years. Yeah. But it demonstrates that scientists haven't arrived at absolute truth. Yep. They're learning too. They're learning too. Hey, good fun. That went by yeah, very quickly. Yeah, that was great. Thanks for that. that let, me, great. let me remind you that if you have a question for Wes... The hard ones, address them to West, the really hard ones, nice easy ones, address them to me. 
The way you do that is write to us at lineuponline at iiw.org, lineuponline at iiw.org. We'll see you again next time. Thank you for praying for us. We are praying for you. Great fun to be able to answer your Bible questions. We'll do it again next time. This has been Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. <laughs> 